Hi, it's Phil Croshaw again here from Passions. And in this episode, I welcome Paul Zenon from the telly. Enjoy. Hello and a very warm welcome to Passions. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Paul Zenon. And some of you may recognise Paul. I know I did straight away because he's been on TV quite a bit over the years and he's quite a recognisable face. Um, we're going to talk to him today about his passions. And as I say with all my guests, I always ask them to introduce themselves because they can do a damn sight better job than I ever could. So, uh, Paul, very warm welcome to Passions. Tell us what your passion is and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my, um, well, I said, my name's Paul Zenon. Um, I'm not into astrology, so I won't tell you my star sign. Um, and my passion is mainly magic, but generally the kind of history of variety and entertainment, comedy, all that kind of stuff. The more weird and wonderful, the better. So how long have you been into that? Was it something you were, you know, born with, almost like with a magic wand as you came out of the womb kind of thing? <laughs> or is it something that developed over time? It was uh, as a result of my dad's magic wand, funnily enough. Um, but, uh, I came into this world. But uh, no, when I was a kid, I uh, used to go on uh, day trips or occasionally week-long holidays to, uh, to places like Blackpool. 
Blackpool, Morgan, Southport, very occasionally Scarborough. And so I kind of got into, I mean, at that point, coming from a, a small town on the Yorkshire Lancashire border, Blackpool was literally the, the bright lights, you know, the illuminations and the rest of it. And that was my first taste of sort of live shows. Mm-hmm. So going to, uh, you, you book up at the start of the week to go and see people like Freddie Starr and Danny LaRue and Rick Large, Ken Dodd and all that sort of thing. And I kind of really got into the sort of general showbiz thing. Um, but I was also, bizarrely, I was kind of into um, jokes, like practical jokes at the time. Uh, so I used to get the American comics, uh, like DC and Marvel stuff, you know, Superman and the Hulk and, and all that sort of stuff. And in the back, you probably remember, there was always a page of, of adverts for things like, you know, X-ray specs and whoopee cushions and, uh, you know, rubber face masks and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm kind of fascinated because Blackpool used to have not just joke shops, but it used to have these um, uh, kind of novelty shops, I suppose you'd call them. So you'd buy anything uh, from a, a model of Blackpool Tower made out of seashells, that's the world's smallest Bible, but also all these things that you could only see in the back of American comics. Um, and so that's quite useful because you could realise how rubbish they were and not waste your money on them, you know, uh, and actually see them in the flesh. Uh, and so I was going to, you know, along with that was the sort of magic trick side. And so I kind of got, uh, every other Christmas as a boy, you get a, a magic set alternating with the in-between years of chemistry set. It draws one or two. So uh, I got fun enough, I ended up doing uh, sciences at, uh, at school um, because of that. So, you know, my, my youth was basically spent blowing things up or tricking people, you know, so, uh, and that's carried on ever since. So kind of Blackpool was the sort of pivotal thing because it kind of brought together my sort of, you know, initial love of show business, uh, where you could see people that were actually off the telly in real life in 3D, and also have a, have a go at it yourself by doing magic tricks, you know. Um, so when I was about, I think I was 13, maybe 14, I ended up getting a summer job on the pier in Blackpool at uh, Paul Clive's Magic Shop, uh, which famously was the place that Sutton was born. Uh, really? I, I didn't yeah, know that. It, uh, in, I think it was 1949, bought the first ever Sutton puppet. Sorry, I've given it away, it's a puppet. Um, and <laughs> in the shop that I ended up working in, which was kind of a combined magic and joke shop. Um, and the following year, I was looking forward to kind of doing the same thing again in some other ways. Uh, you know, I was getting paid good money for that. Bearing in mind, I was about 14, and I was on £50 a week, which you imagine that as a, a schoolboy in the 70s was, was you know, hell wrong. And so the following year, I was looking forward to doing the same again. Got there at Easter, and the shop had closed down. It retired. Um, but at the same time, another magic shop had opened called the House of Secrets. And the House of Secrets, um, it was a new place. It was mainly selling jokes, but some magic, just on the central prom, almost opposite central pier. And uh, the guy who ran it was called Bill Thompson. And I, Bill actually became my lifelong mentor. Um, and I ended up working in that shop for probably about five summer seasons, uh, you know, doing the illumination shifts at the weekends in September. So, you know, it was, it was a long, old stretch. And that's kind of what got me into show business. So uh, Bill was teaching me stuff. I was demonstrating tricks uh, and form jokes, hence the, you know, the lifelong sort of mix of comedy and magic, really. Um, that that must have been amazing because those were the would have been the Halesian days, wouldn't they? Wasn't that where you know all some of the biggest acts were appearing on the on the proms and stuff? Absolutely, yeah. So you know we'd go and see shows in the evenings, and uh, there was a long running magic show called Mystique at the Pleasure Beach in the Horseshoe Bar. Uh, the figure out of Rumbleweeds on the South Pier, Cannonball. Paul Daniels was working the, the, 
the North Pier, the, the same year that I worked in, in Paul Clive's shop there. So I actually sold Paul Daniel's tricks, which was quite a, a buzz for a, for a kid, you know. Um, but at the same time I was working with Bill in, in the House of Secrets, I would, um, Bill was a, a kind of, he was a great artist and illustrator and a good photographer as well. So he put me together this little pamphlet and I went around putting, um, putting these through the doors of the guest houses, the B&Bs, the hotels on the prom, uh, offering to do shows there. So they were my, my kind of first shows. Uh, didn't get any response from the pamphlet, so I ended up going door to door, uh, obviously a precocious little stuff. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm knocking on the doors and offering them a uh, free show for their guests. And if they like the free show, I'd come back the following week and do it for a fiver. Uh, and that's how I kind of started out. So, uh, and it was, you know, a good training ground. Um, so you're obviously a wheelie dealer as well. And of course, you're still involved uh, in Blackpool, aren't you, with, with the Showtown project, I understand? Yeah, it, it's been a long time. I ended up living in Blackpool for a while. Um, and then in 1990, uh, I ended up going back uh, working on the Central Pier doing the, the longest season I've ever done. We did 210 nights without a night wow. uh, And that was with Lin uh, Linda Nolan and Mick Miller on that show. Um, and, That's uh, Mick with the, with the hair, wasn't it? With the bold boy with the long hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could dream, mate. We could yeah. dream. I was speaking to him a couple of weeks ago. Um, but yeah, even that um, uh, Last Laugh in Vegas series about you know, maybe two years ago on TV. Uh, but yeah, that was a, a great training ground as well. And, and uh, Bill, by this point, had moved the House of Secrets and it became a, an exclusively a magic studio uh, up near, um, uh, near the Winter Gardens line. And so I was kind of hanging out with him during the day, doing the shows at night. And, and you know, uh, cut to a few years later, and um, I, I came back with a show called The Clique, which is kind of a show that I've done on and off for years, which is a kind of adult circus burlesque cabaret thing. And uh, we did that at the, the Blackpool Tower. So there's been this kind of constant thing of Blackpool over, what, you know, about 40 odd years now. Um, yeah. I got involved in kind of helping out with uh, a new project, which is called Showtown. Uh, Showtown's um, a, a new museum, but Blackpool, strangely, has never had a museum. And uh, this is really a, a museum of fun and entertainment. It's the kind of story of the, the great sea, the British seaside and the days out and the rest of it. Um, so I've kind of been helping out, advising on a certain aspects of that. Uh, that was due to open this year, uh, but obviously with things being what they are, it's been set back to next year now. Um, but it's a great location. It's right next to the Tower Buildings on the prom, uh, in between the Tower and Coral Island. So it's what used to be the old Palace nightclub where they used to do things like the Hitman and Her on TV and, and stuff like that. Where Gosh, yeah. They've rebuilt the building, so the, um, the museum's on the ground and first floor, and then there's a new four-star hotel built above it. Um, so that's quite exciting. I mean, that's uh, some of the um, acquisitions they've already got for that. And there's a big section about sort of magic and, and joke shops and all that kind of stuff as well. So that's been a real buzz sort of, you know, it kind of feels like coming full circle from growing up there and learning the trade there to coming back and sort of being being part of the museum. That's how old I am now. I'm in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I know a little bit about it because uh, I mean, obviously, as you know, uh, the co-founder of uh, Passions, Spencer Phillips, is heavily involved in it as as the chairman of it, and yeah. I know he's very excited about it. And it all yeah. sounds. Uh, I think there's such a there's probably going to be such a pent-up demand for fun. I think it'll go crazy. You know, like holidays, there's talks about holidays. You don't better get a holiday for love no money and they'll be about five yeah. times more expensive. I think yeah. the same will happen with fun. <laughs> I think you're right. Do you? 
it's, I mean, what's nice about it as well is it, it is a museum of fun. It's not like a dusty old, you know, glass cases with brass optical instruments type of museum. It's very interactive. It's family oriented. And um, yeah, I, I think you don't like the, uh, it's, it's a bit like the old thing that in a recession, people buy more chocolate, you know, it's a treat. Uh, it's something that they haven't had for a while. It's, it's a feel good factor. Uh, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, without getting political, but I'm not a fan of Brexit. However, I think a lot more people will by necessity be having holidays at home rather than going abroad uh, again, you know, part of financial reasons. Um, but also, you know, it's going to be slightly harder to travel as well. So I think, you know, if there's ever going to be a, a real resurgence to seaside resorts in the UK, I think it's coming up probably in a, in a year or so. Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. So uh, in terms of the magic then, do you, have you and do you love it to the point where you can't get enough of it? Do you ever get to the point where that where it's just like, oh, I just, I just really don't want to do it now. I don't want to do it for a while. Or is it just constantly no, in I, you? I think the, the interesting thing is that I, I'm not that passionate about magic as in watching it. Uh, I more enjoy performing it, you know, so... I mean, for example, for pretty much the past year, I haven't looked at much online, to be honest. You know, I've looked at very, very little. And also, because I've been busy, I'm, I'm, I was just telling you before we started recording that I'm doing up a, uh, my new house uh, and I'm watching a real bomb site. So, kind of, the, these hands used to hold a microphone and now they get cut in half by uh, angle grinders instead of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, so I, I, I actually haven't missed the magic side of things, but I've missed performing. Because uh, besides doing the, the, the magic and the comedy side of things, the kind of stand-up aspect of it, um, I've all, I also do a fair bit of acting as well. And uh, I realised when, when I was doing an acting job, probably about five years ago, I'd sort of, I've not had enough of doing the magic thing, but I'd just been doing it for so long. So the novelty values bound to wear off to a certain extent. And, I, you know, without blowing my own trumpet, I've played pretty much every type of show, you know, from TV stuff to theatre stuff to things abroad and military gigs and kids TV, whatever it might be. So I've, I kind of feel I've, I've done most of what I wanted to do, you know, in that respect. However, the acting thing is a real challenge because unlike, uh, unlike doing stand-up or whatever, you, you know, with magic you kind of polish things and you perform them time and again and practice time and again and you keep using pretty much the same material, you change things once in a while. Whereas with an acting job, you start from scratch, you know, you're creating a character and you learn the script and once you've either filmed it or done a tour with it or whatever, you've been it. And so there's something quite nice about that, you know, just doing something that's finite and then moving on. And so I've actually enjoyed, you know, what I've realised during the lockdown uh, periods is, is that um, what I really miss is performing. And it doesn't matter whether that's magic or comedy or acting, it's just getting up and showing off, really. You know, it's... Yeah. It, it, uh, and no, I was going to say was it's so funny to hear you say that because um, every interview that I do, there's always a few takeaways, you know. And uh, I did do an interview recently with a guy called Paul Stainton, and I actually asked him, and he's in TV and radio, and presenter, DJ, all that sort of stuff, you know, nightclub DJ back in the day. And um, when I said to him, what's your passion? He said, well, I've been thinking about it since I knew I was doing this interview. And actually, my passion is I just love showing off. And I was going to ask you that same thing. Is it is it something in you that you just like to show off and, and get the, from the audience? I think with the, the people that have become so-called celebrities in recent years on TV, it's generally been from reality shows, you know. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's things like Big Brother and um, all that kind of stuff. 
And, and it tends to be largely about their personality, which is their normal personality. Uh, and often quite confrontational, you know, it's kind of, you know, um, they're quite outspoken and people like them because of that. And with me and with a lot of old school performers, I think it's entirely opposite. I think the reason we got into performing, a lot of us anyway, is because we weren't actually arrogant and we weren't, we were actually quite quiet and shy off stage. And getting on stage was a way to sort of let off steam, really, you know. So, um, I, you know, still these days, I wouldn't consider myself particularly sociable in general terms. You know, I'm very happy to go to the pub and sit in the corner on my own. And, and, and you know, and I'm quite happy with my own company, basically, which is quite lucky. Um, but, yeah. but, Are people sometimes surprised at that? Do you think they expect entertainers to be uh, extrovert and oh, the life and soul of the party, just as a as an assumption? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think because what all they've seen of you is you on TV being your extrovert self in their living room. You know, so they think that's that's you as the, the actual normal person, so to speak. And so if you're sat quiet in the pub, it's like, what's the matter in? He's a miserable sod, isn't he? You know, <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse than someone saying uh, a comedian who's forever telling jokes, no matter what situation they're in. That, that actually becomes a bit tiresome for me. Um, you know, so I, I kind of, you know, I, I do my thing on stage and then I'm kind of, you know, the, the slightly different thing off stage. It's still the same personality, but it's just toned down, really, you know. You're kind of acting, I guess, aren't you, at the end of the day? Well, even when you go on stage doing magic acts, you're still acting, you're yeah. still performing and acting, aren't you? There's a famous quote, actually, from a, um, a guy who's the, he was called the father of modern magic, was the sort of the way, it's the way to remember, who was called Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, um, who's a French magician from the late, I think, sort of 18, uh, late 19th century. And uh, he wrote that, uh, in fact, he was the guy that Houdini took his name from, added an eye to the end of his name. And uh, he said, uh, a magician is an actor playing the part of a magician, uh, which is quite a sort of profound thing. Whatever. So he's saying that no one thinks you're actually a real wizard. You know, that's not the kind of gist of it. You're playing the part of what a magician would be if he actually existed, you know. So yeah, you're, you're doing acting. Um, but I think um, I, I made a rub for my own back in that respect in that um, I did the um, kind of street magic specials, which uh, started on Channel 4 in about uh, 1998, something like that, which was basically going into places around the UK and then later in, in, uh, we had a special in Prague, a Halloween thing. But most of it wasn't street magic, it was really pub magic or bar magic. It was me just barging into somewhere and going, have a look at this, with, with just a single camera following me, you know. And uh, so the problem was with that, is that people watch it on TV and thought that's what you did all day, every day. So I then walk into a bar for a drink and go on then. <laughs> <laughs> I just want a beer. Leave me alone. Exactly. And when I was doing a fair bit of yeah. TV about, you know, early 2000s or whatever, it just used to be a, a constant thing of, you know, walk out the front door and down the street and go, do a trick, show us a trick. Do a trick, you know, unless, which is which is nice, you know, it's great. But it, you know, <laughs> when you don't, they then go and tell their friends what a miserable brother you were. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and in this day and age as well, please splatter it all over Twitter or all over social yeah. media. Yeah. Wish you didn't have that kind of issue back in those days. Yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah. Twitter is, is is a way of people being able to get at someone and make themselves feel important. You know, in the old days, if you wanted to insult someone off the TV. You'd have to write to the BBC and hope that they'd pass your letter on to their agent, 
who hope that, yeah, and all this thing. Whereas now they can just get straight in there with a knife and go, ah, I managed to rile him, you know, and as though that's somehow impressive. It's, you know, I tend not to bother with it too much, to be honest myself. No, well, no, well, I don't actually. I'm not, uh, funnily enough, I, when it first started, I was quite into it because it was new and it was fresh and it was very, very quiet. So uh, I started a, a digital magazine, as a slight aside, uh, called Tweeting Times. And um, I was looking for guests to interview and um, video interview and what have you. And I, Twitter came along and I suddenly found myself being able to directly communicate with the likes of Stephen Fry and Samantha Fox. And but just because there was only me and probably about, I don't know, 3000 people on it. But of course, it very soon became what it's become now, which is just nothing like it started off as. Yeah. And it has become, we could obviously talk about how it's uh, the negativity of it all. So, yeah, yeah, so I liked it in the early days, but uh, it's become way too negative for me now. I was quite happy with my space, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I want to ask you about the fact that um, loads of kids like magic loads of kids do magic loads of kids play magic loads of kids get magic sets and so on and so forth what was the story as to how you broke through and made it into a career and a successful career arguably and became almost you know arguably a household name what was the driving factor behind that and how did that happen um, I, I think i was just desperately out and performing general so uh, having learned the stuff in the, the Blackpool Magic Shop, The House of Secrets, after doing a few shows and realising that I, I did enjoy, you know, performing stuff, I, I used to get incredibly nervous, you know, I mean, like, it's, uh, it's quite, and, and you'd be amazed actually how many big name performers still get nervous about doing live shows. I mean, a famous example years ago was Mike Yarwood, uh, who, you know, was the, the only impressionist on TV, you know, a, a household name, uh, and he got to a point where he actually retired, you know, he had a, a a bit of an alcohol problem because of the because of the nerves, and actually retired from live performing because he just couldn't do it. He was just too nervous about it, and that was after you know thirty years of it. Or whatever. So it's it's a, a thing to overcome, and I think the only way you overcome that nervousness is by doing stage time. You just do as many different shows as you can in as many different uh, you know as big a variety of situations, and so that's what I did. And uh, I basically took every job going. Um, so by the time I kind of left school, uh, I did A-level, so I left school at 18 or so. Um, and I did, I did a little tour with a, a rock band who was still going called Hawkwind. Yes. Uh, yes. I was a, a fan of theirs when I was about you know, 16 or so. And I met them backstage and I put, a, put together a little act uh, using their music and a bit of Pink Floyd on a cassette backing. Um, and it was only about nine minutes long, this thing. And so I met them, and I happened to mention this, and so the, the, the sax player at the time, Nick Turner, said, uh, oh, why don't you come and do a gig with us next week? And I was like, I'm 17 years old at this point, you know. Um, so I did. Wow. Uh, they, they did an instrumental number, and I went on and did my bit to that, you know. Uh, and it came to a head where uh, they asked me to do a few gigs with them. And so uh, I think I might have just turned 18. We did Hammersmith Odeon. So 18 years old, and on stage in front of 5,500 people, hippies and, and bikers uh, on this game. And uh, there was um, a support band, was, a, was an act called Baron Rocco, a Spanish heavy metal band. And so the Gus Hawkwind had a couple of uh, special guests, he had a science fiction writer called Michael Moorcock, 
doing a poem. It's all very kind of psychedelic, uh, arty farty, space rock, you know. And um, it, uh, they said, well, on this one, because the set's going to be quite long, how about we put the, the, the support band on first, and then as they finish, you walk forward and the safety curtain comes down behind you, the big uh, the iron, as they call it, you know, which is a, a, a metal cloth uh, that they have to lower, uh, uh, you know, from a, a legal point of view, halfway through a, you know, during the interval, so it seals off the front of the house if, in case there's a fire. Uh, there's a reason I'm telling you that. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> bring down the iron behind you, and then you do your bit, and we'll reset the awkward behind the curtain. As you finish, the curtain will come back up, and they'll start, dry ice rolls forward, and, and you're off, you know. But fine, so bear in mind, I'm working to music, uh, a cassette recorder, you know. Uh, I, I, the, the band finishes, I walk forward, the curtain comes down behind it. I do my bit to mix reaction, if I'm honest. Uh, and at the end, the music finishes, and nothing happens. The curtain doesn't go back up. So I'm locked from the house in front of the curtain, dressed in my sparkly outfit with my table there, no music, no microphone, and just a load of people staring at me. And so anyway, almost uh, stood there for a couple of minutes and uh, realised the curtain wasn't going to go back up anytime soon. So I ended up doing a kind of Eric Morgan exit, jumping off the front of the stage and running up up the aisle. Um, <laughs> that was a, a bit of a baptism by fire in terms of my first big gig, you know. Um, and I, funny enough, I ended up working with Hawkwind again uh, last year or the year before, doing a couple of gigs with them. Like, wow. You know. um, That's but, incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm That's just incredible. What a story that is. I never would have ever put magic, sparkly <laughs> outfit, magic with Hawkwind. That, that's an incredible yeah, mix. Um, that was the, funny enough, that was where the, the name came from, Denham, uh, oddly enough. Uh, my my, uh, my uh, original name is Paul Collins, which at the time, very bog standard name. And when I was kind of starting out, Paul Daniels had just become famous. And I thought it's kind of vaguely too similar, even though it's different. It's, you know, it's, it's almost like two first names with an S on the second. You know, Paul Collins, Paul Daniels, and it's another Paul. So I thought, I'll change it. So at the time, I was doing this space age magic act, and I was doing A-level sciences. And so uh, I chose Zenon, just without Paul, Zenon with an X. But no one could pronounce it. It was like Exonon. So I changed it to a Z. So it's just Zenon. And then when I brought the comedy back in, brought the Paul back in. But um, Hawkwind actually ended up doing an album called the Zenon Codex, uh, which, you know, so te technically I've got an album named after me, but unfortunately out of about 40 odd albums they've done, it's undoubtedly the very worst one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, at least you've had it named after you. I mean, look look, look on the glass is half, half full, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, mean, I kept digressing there. I think what I, uh, the point I'm sort of trying to make is that I kind of did every sort of gig that was offered. So. Uh, when I did that, um, I, I, soon after that, I think I started doing uh, military tours. I mean, I did the kind of working men's club circuit for a while. That was just dying out at the time. Uh, I did a lot of military gigs uh, in places like um, uh, the Falklands and Belize and uh, during the 90s uh, in the Bosnian conflict, the uh, Croatia, Bosnia, all that sort of stuff. And that was a, a learning ground, as you can imagine, working to a load of squaddies in a war zone. Um, so that really kind of like fine-tuned it in terms of the comedy side of things, you know, if you, you know, you learn survival, uh, basically there. Um, so it's a question, it's a bit like people used to talk about the old working men's club circuit being a hard training ground, it's where, you know, where Paul Daniels came from, and it was. Uh, so I caught the tail end of that, 
Uh, and also holiday camps, they were tough as well. I never enjoyed them. Um, although I said that when I was a kid, that was another, going to Pontins at Blackpool, that was another inspiration. So when the kind of kids show finished in the little theatre there, I'd hang around and I'd nip behind the curtain to see how everything worked in terms of, you know, the, the lights and sound equipment and scenery and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of, I'm not knocking the holiday camps only from a personal point of view. I didn't really enjoy working them, you know. Um, so, I, you know, over the years, I ended up doing every kind of thing I could. One of the jobs that was quite pivotal was doing, um, you know, the stage newspaper. Uh, it was like a big yeah. um, uh, paper. They yeah. uh, adverts in the back, uh, but they also did a yearly thing uh, called Spotlight. Um, I'm oh, no, sorry, it was called Show Call. Spotlight's the actor's version. Uh, Show Call yeah. is the variety act's version. So you paid your money, you had a black and white photograph in there, maximum of 20 words or whatever, and they sent that out to agents. You know, this is before the internet was a thing. So they flipped through this, and I always used to joke about the fact that I always, I always got booked by left-handed agents because they were the ones that flipped through from the back. And they invited me, I've advertised it for two or three years, and they had a, a yearly event where if you paid a bit more money to them, uh, you could go and uh, showcase your talents. So they had, I think it was a three-day event uh, held in Leicester, and uh, you, you got to go and do a 10-minute spot. And supposedly it was a, an audience of light entertainment bookers uh, and agents. Uh, it was actually mainly a lot of old people busting from homes for the afternoon. You know. um, and I ended up hosting that. So I did three days. I think I had to introduce like 175 acts. So you had to come up with material for, to, to link things or the rest of it over that period. Uh, and some of the things, I mean, some of the actually just so bizarre because they were paying to be there. So they weren't necessarily that good, a lot of them. I remember there was one one sequence where they had a, a drag act with a snake who was doing the fire eating, who actually set fire to me, uh, literally on stage. Uh, there was two older guys, one playing a penny whistle while the other one built, uh, bent six inch nails in his teeth. That was an act. Uh, and it was, oh, it was just uh, glory, oh, oh, gloriously pointless, these acts. And then they had someone with a budgie circus as well, or just one after the other. But I struggled through these three days and I got my first agent. Um, so, um, I mean, these days an agent's not that important, particularly. I, mean, I haven't had one for years because of the internet. You know, you get your own website, you know, you sort of deals that way. People can find you easily. But in those days, it's pretty much essential. So, this agent, Put me forward for a, an acting job uh, where it was a kids' TV program where they said uh, we wanted, wanted young magicians with acting ability. So I just lied about the acting ability at that point. So that's what you do as a magician, you tell lies, you know. And so um, uh, I ended up going, and it was a, a so-called tricky business on, on Children's BBC. And oddly enough, the part was playing the right hand man to a guy who ran a magic shop. Um, so I thought, well, I, I can probably act that part, you know. Um, so I went and auditioned for it, and uh, it was initially for a small part in it, um, and then I was going away to the Falklands to do one of the military shows the following week. While I was away, the agent got a call saying, we'd like Paul to come back and audition for one of the, the main roles in it. Uh, and he said, he can't, he's away for a fortnight in the Falklands. <laughs> so by the time I got back, they decided to give it me anyway, so I kind of hit lucky with that, and I ended up playing this character called Mickey. Uh, in tricky business, and I, I did a year of that, and then the following year, I ended up being a magic consultant on it, and it was with Bernie Clifton, and it was a, a different kind of format. It was a guy who ran a magic theatre 
and I was his right hand man in that and we changed my name to Paul at that point and from that I ended up being kind of four years of Children's BBC another series called Tricks and Tracks uh, which was a magic and pop music show and um, yeah so that, that was I mean that was a, a real training ground as well so Tricks and Tracks um, I think I mean, we had two guest magicians maybe three each week and a guest pop band and there's myself and another presenter called Sally Gray and I had to do an opening trick a main trick and a small bit later on. So every episode I was doing at least three and sometimes five new routines in amongst all these guest magicians who were doing the standard stuff. So I had to kind of come up with this material week on week. So again, that was, you know, the pressure was on. And I, I think back to that now, you know, how I would uh, come up with that stuff. Uh, so it, it was, I think the answer to the idea of making it work was just to constantly put myself under pressure. Uh, and that was basically, Partly through greed, financially, but just accepting every job that was offered. You know, it was. Uh, I mean, if you talk to, uh, I'm very good friends with a guy called Mark Raffles, who's a, 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 a quite. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying an elderly magician from pickpocket. He's 99 years old. Um, on, in fact, it might be about two days time. 22nd of January. What day? What day is it? I'm not sure. Uh, 20th. Yeah. Yeah, he's 99. Uh, on the 22nd, and he only gave up performing about two years ago. Oh, cracking. And he's amazing. And he's the, the first thing he ever says, are you busy? You know, it's just that thing about, as an old pro, it was always just about working. Because if you didn't uh, work, you didn't earn anything, you know? And um, yeah, it's just, just uh, I think I've got that old school mentality, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do an, an awful lot of interviews and I've done for many years with many different people from all sorts of walks of life. And the thing that tends to glue them all together in a sense is that they are achievers in their own right. Yeah, some some have been billionaires, some have been millionaires, some have you know not, have just been well known for what they do and being good at what they do. But there's certain things that you see time and time and time again. And uh, what what I'm seeing, even when you're talking there, I'm I'm seeing a quite a two things that stand out for me. One is work ethic. You know, you've clearly got the work ethic. And I also talk to a lot of clients in businesses when I do business consulting about the importance of taking massive action. Yeah. And that's something else that's jumping out at me when you said about, you know, every gig I got, I was doing. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think the only type of show I've, I've never done is a bar mitzvah. And that's not deliberately, it's just never happened. But uh, I remember I got a call several years ago uh, from an agent who said, uh, I've got this job. I don't think you're going to want to do it, but uh, it's a bar mitzvah for 300 kids. But I have to warn you that about a third of them are members of the Junior Magic Circle. And I think I'm busy that day. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he said, well, can you recommend anybody else for that job? And I went, I don't dislike anyone enough to recommend them for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a smart move, to be honest, I'd imagine. Is, is there, what's your views about the way in which, because um, as I perceive it, and challenge me on this, please do, but the way I perceive it is magic's really taken, um, seems to have come back with a vengeance, possibly driven by Britain's Got Talent as much as anything else, mainstream TV. And I think one guy won it, didn't he? The guy um, from the army, I think, won it a couple of yeah, years ago. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, what's been interesting about that is... Um, Going back to, yeah, about 98, things were very kind of stale at that point. Uh, Paul Daniels was a BTV magician in the UK for a long, long time, and then he uh, lost his series on the BBC. 
And there was kind of this dead period from, uh, I don't know, kind of mid nineties for like four or five years or so. And then the street magic thing happened and that kind of refreshed it. So I was doing stuff in the, in the UK at that point, David Blaine in the States. There's another guy in the States called Chris Angel who came in a bit later and then Dynamo here. And it, it sort of all went that way. There were, there were quite a few series that are not particularly well remembered, but they were all of that style. It was all kind of you know, location-based stuff. And we, it, the showbiz was kind of stripped away from it, really. It was kind of non-glam and it was non-comedy as well. It was just very much pared down magic thing, which has not really ever been my thing. So even in the street magic thing, I always tried to include humor, not take myself too seriously and make it kind of grounded, you know. Uh, when, the, uh, when the director on the pilot suggested that we go in some wine bar in London, I said, that's not really what I'm aiming at, you know. I said, let's go to Manchester or Glasgow or Blackpool or, or wherever, we did it that way. And uh, yeah, another point, they wanted to get celebrity guests on there. I said, it'd have to be the right sort of celebrity because it's, you know, I'd, I'd rather go to a backstreet boozer and make people laugh uh, than, you know, have whoever, um, I forget who was suggested, won't go there. Um, but it, it was, um, yeah, it was interesting. So Magic from about 98 to, I don't know, maybe 2010, it was all sort of quite fresh and wrestling. I have to say, I've been surprised how long the street magic genre has, has carried on. Uh, and it hasn't really changed in style in the past 20 years now, you know. Uh, whereas the other thing that happened was uh, Darren Brown came along and did the psychological stuff. The sort of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, what would have been called mind reading in the old days and hypnosis and all the rest of it. Um, but I think he describes himself as a psychological illusionist. And he really used the TV format to make it work, you know. So even though a lot of the methods he was using go, uh, uh, went back 100 years or so in basic terms, um, it, it appeared very fresh. And so there were a lot of kids wanting to be Darren Brown all of a sudden, you know. So I think what's happened with the, you know, variety has kind of disappeared from TV with the exception of the talent shows you mentioned. And so it's kind of, uh, I think it's a hybrid now. It's the talent thing. It's coming up with something uh, that's a bit of a different angle on the trick, but it's sort of, uh, because it's on TV, a lot of it is using mind reading type stuff. So I'm saying at least 50% of the Britain's Got Talent thing is making uh, a mind reading trick large scale, is, is that the gist of it. So there's a heck of a lot of people going, right, think of this, choose a colour, pick a card, and then this happened last week, and it within the three things, you know. So it's a, it's a little bit saving for my liking these days. Um, so, do, so do you ever get amazed then, Paul? Do you ever watch, or is it virtually everything you see, oh, no, they do that. Oh, no, they do that. Oh, yeah, no, they do. Is there any time you go, wow? <laughs> yeah, there, there's, it's very occasional, to be honest, because you know, I've been doing it a long time. So yeah, yeah. Only, only so many principles that, that I use in general. Yeah. What I'm more impressed by is the presentation of something. It's, it's when someone's got an angle. So it's not usually the actual method. You know, the, the idea that the secret is the most important thing is nonsense. You know, it's, 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 it's not what you do, it's, it's the way you do it, always for me. It's about being entertaining, entertaining with it. So if someone can come up with a refreshing presentation of an old idea, I actually prefer seeing that to a, to a new method, if you will, a new secret. Um, so, but very occasionally I'll see something and go, oh, wow, yeah, that is pretty amazing. You know, they've taken that uh, to the nth degree, you know, just one step further than anybody else. Uh, I know you're going to ask me for an example, but I can't think of one. <laughs> no, 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 I was just intrigued to know whether, you know, it's like somebody who does, um, I don't know, vid videography. I do some videography, not a lot, but still do a fair bit in the business. And um, it's like that whole thing about going, going and watching a movie 
and forgetting what's happened in the last two minutes because you're looking at the lighting and you're looking at the angle and you're looking at the aperture. And, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, can, I can watch, um, you know, I like to watch things, you know, like old school dance stuff or theatre pieces. If I'm at somewhere like Edinburgh Fringe, which I do quite regularly or did, um, yeah, I'll go and see anything but a magic show. Well, that's not quite true. I've got a couple of friends who are doing shows, who are magicians or whatever. I'll go and see there. But I don't go out on my way to see magic shows because an hour is a long time to sit there if it's, you know, not going to excite me. Um, so what I'll go and see instead is, is theatre-based things. I, I like seeing one-person drama things, you know, because um, I always learn something. I, I always think that you actually learn something uh, even if it's really bad because you go, I'm not going to make that mistake, you know. Um, but you might just get an idea, like you say, from a lighting thing or a plot twist or, or whatever it may be. And in fact, one of the shows that I've been uh, most, I don't know, most pleased with that I've ever done uh, I did a thing, uh, it's probably about five years ago now, called Lincoln Rings. Um, and it's very hard to describe. It was a hard sell because it's not, it's a piece of theatre uh, and that in itself doesn't sell. It's not really a play. It's more a monologue, which just sounds boring. Uh, it's about magic, but it doesn't have very much magic in it at all. Any kind of sense of. But it's the, um, I started writing it because I've got a bit of a fascination with um, uh, vintage magic, historical magic and the characters, you know, and the obvious one being Houdini. So I wanted to write something, uh, a kind of biographical thing about Houdini, but not playing him, because uh, I haven't got his build, I'm not very good with American accents or any other accents, um, and, but I thought, I came across the fact that uh, his right-hand man, he had several assistants that were within long-term, male assistants. One of them was a guy called Jim Collins. So obviously this jumped out because my original surname was Collins. And uh, I managed to find at the time, uh, when I was researching it maybe seven years ago, there were very, very few references to him on the, on the net uh, or in books. Uh, I managed to find a couple of images. And he was, um, when, he, when Houdini died, he was the same age as me. Jim was the same age as me. And actually didn't look unlike me. He looked like me, but slightly balding, more balding. And, um, and so I thought, that's the character. So I started doing some research into him. And discovered that despite all the biographies that I mentioned him saying that he was either, most thought he was Irish, one thought he was Scottish, the other thought he was a Cockney, it turns out his birth certificate said he was born in Portsmouth. So I thought, I can manage that accent wise and the rest of it. So I started writing a play about Houdini from his point of view. The idea was that it was set just after Houdini died and Jim had to go back to the theatre and pack up the props for the very last time and reminiscing and all that kind of thing. Uh, at the same time as this happened, in real life, my mentor that I've known since I was a kid, Bill Thompson, uh, uh, who was still running the House of Secrets, became ill. And I kind of went up there to visit him when he was in hospital with a coma. And, uh, and this whole kind of thing unraveled. And I had to go back uh, when Bill uh, died. And I had to pack up the magic track. Uh, and it, and it, all of a sudden, I was kind of living the part that I was writing for Jim Collins. It was my, my mentor, you know, the guy that I'd kind of grown up with. Uh, with an admired and I'm having to pack up the, the stuff for the last time. So my girlfriend at the time, we were, we were in Blackpool uh, obviously and uh, we were just sat in the bar and she went, actually that's the story, that's the story, it's a parallel thing and in fact the new and Bill thing is more important than the Jim and Houdini thing. So it ended up, the Lincoln Rings thing, the, 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 the title refers to the first proper magician's trick ever bought in the House of Secrets which is a set of Chinese linking rings, the metal hoops that link together and link. 
and it's sort of a metaphor for these overlapping lives, you know. Um, so I don't mind this thing, and it's the first time ever I've been on stage without wanting to make people laugh, um, yeah, in particular. Even some of the acting stuff I've done in a straight role, if you, if you get it wrong, and you can make the audience laugh and get away with it that way, you know, that, the, the Shakespeare thing, with the Merry Wives of Windsor, and at least if you mess that up, it's a comedy role, you know. Um, where, where, where you're talking about, Bill, I'd like to just pick up on that, actually, the, the, the Bill thing, because um, it's clear from that story and that, that what you've told us about Bill that he became and has become a very important person in terms of mentoring you. Now, there's a lot of debate, and, and I'm never quite sure um, whether people really understand, particularly, especially maybe in business, how important it is to have a mentor who can help and support you. And is, is would you say that Bill's been instrumental in Absolutely. overall in your achievements just by having somebody there who's been there and done it? Well, hands down, the most important person in, in my career, long term, yeah. I mean, even yeah. when, you know, I've been, I think my kind of happiest time was probably either when I was, you know, when we were in the, I mean, I talk about this in the show, but um, when we were sat on a, on a Saturday night in September, October, I, I, I was hitchhiking across on a Saturday morning from Yorkshire to to, uh, uh, to work in the shop for the weekend. Because obviously it was open quite late at night, you know, with the illuminations, we were going 10 or 11 o'clock. And so I think my favourite point was um, come about 10 o'clock, the, the nightclub underneath uh, the shop, tiny little place called the Time Gap Discotheque and uh, they'd start playing, I always remember that, that one particular season, it must have been 1980 or so, and they'd play the 12-inch um, the mix of Soft Cell Tainted Rough and that was up through the floorboards uh, under the shop and that was our cue to start, stop packing up basically, so you know, I'd be polishing the, the cases and they'll be hoovering the floor and we'd put a step ladder across the door with a closed sign on it, you know, and uh, at that point Bill would take a uh, couple of pound coins out the till given to me. I go down into the, the nightclub as a, I must be 15 or 16 at this point, but they knew me in the nightclub. And I go put two, two half pint barrel glasses of lager and I bring them back up to the shop. And then we turn the lights out and we just watch the crowds on the prom walking past the door. And we chew the fat and talk about the, the, the weird characters that have been in during the day and the last one down and the rest of it. And just thinking back to that, and of course talking about magic and you know, the rest of it, um, and yeah, I think that was one of the happiest periods of my life, you know, um, just chewing the fat. I think the, the American carnies call it shooting the breeze, you know, they just at the end of the day, they kind of get rid of everybody off the lot, they'd sit there with a beer and just, you know, have a laugh. Um, and then 1990 again, when I was on the Central Pier, kind of once, once every week or two, Bill would come and see the show again suggest some ideas, he'd make a prop for me or whatever, and in the afternoons we'd hang around in the studio, you know. So when I started doing things like, you know, um, Countdown, I've been, been Countdown on TV for 16 years, I mean, not something like that now. And um, Bill died, I think it's about seven years ago now, eight, maybe eight years. And um, during the first, you know, block of, of Countdown, I'd get home and there'd be an envelope on, on the mat and it'd be, It'd be some something you'd photocopied from an old book. This might work for countdown, you know. So it, it was literally a period of forty years, almost, you know, at least thirty-five years, something like that. So um, yeah, I think mentorships are incredibly important, and I, I think there are two ways of looking at it these days. I mean, uh, people refer to magic shops as the old school as, as brick and mortar shops, obviously, because most stuff is online these days, and everybody's got a nostalgia about that because you go and chat the person 
other people have come in, you'd show each other tricks and you just learn by attrition that way. Whereas now you can find no end of tutorials online, but it lacks that personal touch, you know. Um, so uh, there are DVDs or downloads you can buy to learn a trick. I mean, I, I suppose some people are lucky and they've got a mentor, magic-wise I'm talking now, uh, that is online, so it's still personal. But I still don't think it's the same as being in the same room as that person, you know. I think, I think the internet has been incredible for most things related to learning anything at all. Um, but also, I, I still, I still miss, I still miss the smell of old books um, and the, the smell of the House of Secrets, which incidentally was very distinct. It was a mixture of uh, uh, Dunhill cigarette smoke or Dunhill, Dunhill's a chain smoker, uh, and mixed with death books. Uh, you know, it was um, very much kind of old, uh, old kind of hippie. Style. So um, now, there's something about talking to people in three D. Um, and just you know, you, you soak up the atmosphere in general, whether that smells and noises or whatever. Yeah, no, very true. I, I have that same feeling when I go into um, a Waterstones. Um, uh, the rare times that you go into a Waterstones, there is one here up in Manchester where I live, and uh, I, I just go back. It's a nostalgic thing where I go back because I remember because I've got huge numbers of books, you know, physical books. Uh, and I, whenever going to Waterstones, even now, I, you know, I kind of look back and remember the excitement and the enjoyment of getting a book that I particularly wanted. Yeah. Um, and it just takes you back. You know, now, of course, there's literally a billion books and I could have them ordered in five minutes now on my iPad. Yeah, <laughs> it's not the same, really, is it? No, I mean, I, I've, got, you know, I've still got books that I've acquired from Bill or whatever. I mean, he had some at his house. I mean, you know, just, even when the smoking ban came, he still smoked in the studio, you know. And so uh, there's a gang of lads, uh, well, lads are saying we're middle-aged now, but we, we call ourselves uh, Bill's Boys. It was just people who were regulars or others that worked in the shop after I left and, and the rest of it. And uh, so we have this thing that we call it Essence of Bill. And if you pick up one of these old books, you can still smell it. And I never get any further readings. I'm kind of, you know, sort of filling up with tears every, every time. I, you know, I think smell is in particular is, is kind of really important in bringing back memories, isn't it? Yeah, and, and smell of books is a key, isn't it? My wife my wife and I have had that same conversation. And that, that's the part of the Waterstones thing. It's the smell of the books that, that takes you back, really. Yeah. Um, talking of stories and, and being a, an entertainer and, you know, a very accomplished and, and uh, great entertainer, um, I think there's probably 64 books in every one of you folks in terms of stories. Uh, and a little bird tells me that you have a story about Barry Cryer at some point who uh well, yeah i mean it's um funny barry Crayer phoned me uh, last week he, he, he's, he's such a lovely bloke you know that the, the phrase national treasure i think is very overused but in his case you know he's uh, along with um i mean just a, a precedence but the uh, years ago i met bob monkhouse i did a show when i was hosting it and uh in fact he gave me one of the best bits of advice on hosting shows because most of my work, my kind of uh, my, my earners, my bread and butter, has been doing corporate gigs over the years, doing business conferences, after dinner type things, you know. And uh, I've done a hell of a lot of those, and they can be quite hard. Um, and I did one uh, with Bob Munkhouse, and he was obviously top of the bill, and I was hosting it. And, and for years, I've had this thing where it's usually the managing director is, is the one who introduces you. And because they're not in show business, generally, you know, they're not not that hot at being on stage and doing it. <laughs> Yeah. Often, when they introduce you, they'll, they'll, they'll use your name first rather than at the end of the sentence. They go, right, uh, we've got Paul Denning coming on now. 
uh, I'm sure he's going to be very funny. Uh, da, da, da. And they've got nowhere to go because they've already used your name. <laughs> so you need to end up on the name. You know, da, 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 pause in it, so, uh, <laughs> so when, when they ask me for advice these days, or, or until recently, um, I, I, I use the line that Bob Monkhouse taught me, which was, I said, I said, Mr. Monkhouse, how do you want to be introduced? And he said, um, just say any three things in ascending order of intonation and put my name at the end. And it's great advice, you know. Um, so, uh, so and, and Barry Klein used to write for Bob Monkhouse and write with him and uh, so um, going back, uh, I'm trying to think why I mentioned Bob Monkhouse specifically then. Uh, there was some reason, but forgive me for that. But Barry Cryer, uh, kind of similar school, I mean, he worked on everything, you know, uh, from, uh, he wrote the Kenny Everett video show, which, you know, scripted for that, which I, I was a big, big fan of. You know, people don't realize how, you know, two Ronnies and, and all that kind of thing. And I, I ended up um, doing a few fringe festival shows. That's why I mentioned Don Monkhouse. Where Don Monkhouse, after the gig, was talking to me, and he knew every young alternative comedian on the circuit. Now, bearing in mind, this was in his later years, and you've got people like, you know, Jimmy Tarbock, who always uh, dissed young comedians, always said there isn't, when he was 35, he'd said there isn't a decent comic under 30. When he was 50, there wasn't a decent comic under 45. Don Monkhouse actually embraced new comedy, you know, and so he was a big fan. He spoke to me about people called, you know, there's some called Jerry Sadovitz, who's a very hardcore Glaswegian guy. Um, and, you know, he, he knew everything about every comic that was currently on the circuit, even you know, in, in, the, in the 90s, and was very enthusiastic. And Barry Cryer is exactly the same. He's still doing Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He's eight, is it 83, I think he is, or something like that. Um, and yet he's still, you know, he's on there in a black t shirt and jeans. And, uh, yeah, he's great. I, I love watching him talk. I, I love it when he's been he's on shows, being interviewed about stuff. Yeah, so, I, mean, yeah. I worked with him several times over the years. Now, going back about it's probably about nine, ten years ago now, um, I've, I've got a bit of a thing about um, psychics and mediums. I won't, won't go into detail about it, but kind of a, you know, I've seen a few that have kind of quite upset me in terms of them exploiting vulnerable people, really, kind of taking the money off. On people by impersonating dead children and things. It's not, you know. Oh um, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let's yeah. not let's not go there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's I another show. Think, yeah, I wrote an article about yeah. how some of the mediums do it in terms of trickery uh, uh, for a, uh, a national newspaper, and it ended up kind of kicking off. I, you know, there was all sorts of court cases and, and all the rest of it coming. But the first person to call me when it was in the newspaper, the article uh, was Barry Cryer, just out of the blue. And he phoned me just to say, well done, mate. Uh, and all I said, well, that's, that's really sweet, you know. Um, and so from then on, he's called me probably about you know, two or three times a year just to say hello and have a catch-up or, you know, Merry Christmas or whatever whatever it is. Uh, but he called me uh, about, oh, must be about five or six years ago, just to say, uh, he said, I saw you at the, um, uh, the BAFTA last night. Um, I text, this is a message rather than speaking to me directly. And he said, uh, textbook performance, brilliant, all the rest of it. And I'm thinking, that's a bit odd, because I wasn't at the BAFTA thing uh, last I was doing a gig uh, in the East End for a tattoo convention. And I'm thinking, how has he got this confused? I can't see Barry at a tattoo convention, but you never know. Um, but why the BAFTA thing? I thought maybe I misheard it. And so I called him back, and uh, 
and he, he thought he was calling Paul Zerdin, the ventriloquist. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> gag ever since. So whenever he phones me now, I'll say, how are the puppets? <laughs> you know, so, but, uh, Brilliant. But yeah, he, he called me, uh, I mean, the, the typical thing, he called me last week, and then a follow-up couple of calls, uh, to say that he'd written an article about Tommy Cooper, and he knows why I'm kind of interested in the history of, of uh, comedy magic or the rest of it. And he said, I've just written an article about him for a magazine. He said, but I seem to remember there was a French magician who wore a fez and did comedy stuff as well. And looking up, I knew who he was talking about. It was an old guy called Mac Ronnie. And, uh, and so I, I, I told him about this, and then I sent him a link to it. So then he calls me a couple of days later to say he watched the link, and then he, he dissects it, every kind of bit of it. And, and he's just got a real passion for it. And you think, you know, in his 80s, and yet he still just remembers a little bit of trivia um, from, you know, the last guy, I mean, <clears throat> the link I sent was from TV 1978. Matt Rodney was doing a show with Bob Monkhouse, who was a guest on, on that. And he remembers these tiny little things that he just wanted to check. He couldn't remember the name, but once he got that, it all came flooding back. But mm -hmm. he just out of the blue, he'll take the time to kind of give you a call and, and ask how I'm doing. Like, and it's rare, isn't it? In the in the age of texting and WhatsApping and email, just a ch just a phone call for a chat is quite a rare thing, isn't it? Totally. The, the fact that you know he, he had a bit of a ill health problem a couple of years ago. Um, you know, he's he's obviously in the risk group for the COVID thing and all that stuff. But his only line is, "How are you coping with this?" You know, thinking about work and stuff. It's Interested in you, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Wonderful. Right. Well, we're coming up to the end of the of the time. Um, absolutely fantastic. I've loved every second of it. In fact, it's one of those where I've just looked at the clock and thought, crikey, where did that time go? Uh, and it's because obviously talk about yourself so much. It's because you like showing off, that's what it is. <laughs> but you're allowed to because it's your passion. I tell you what, my voice is going after this short period of time. I haven't spoken to anyone for, apart from Barry Clark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing the, the next show that you'll be doing, which will be uh, uh, House Building with Paul Z Z Zenon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Paul Zenon's probably beat me to that. Yeah, he's a puppet. He'll be decorating, yeah. <laughs> anyway thanks a lot paul really appreciate your time as i say to everybody you know time is precious and everything and obviously stay safe and i hope you your house gets built and then uh, hopefully maybe i'll meet you in person one day and because oh, when yeah. i started this project I, I wanted to do these interviews one-to-one -one with people that was the, that was the original plan and then of course covid started to kick in just as i was starting it and it became as <laughs> it became basically what was like a zoom interview um process which was yeah. it was either that or not bother and i wanted to do it desperately wanting to do it Absolutely. so ever so much i'll let you know when it's uh, when when you're going live as it were and uh, uh obviously thanks again for all your time mate really appreciate I it enjoyed it thank you take care paul see ya yeah, bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye.